Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins. And prominent educational thought leader, Adriana Duprada. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education. Those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community, as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are their stories. An art teacher, history teacher, and two pillars of society from the same family. From St Kilda, Brunswick, Sunshine West and the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy. We've got such an episode of Game Changers today. Rosie and Lucy Thomas, the co-founders of Project Rocket. These guys have life and purpose just bubbling out of them. And I'm so excited, Adriana. I can't wait. Let's go. Yeah, I'm really, really super excited about our two guests today here, Phil, uh, for, for Series 5 of the Game Changers podcast. Um, Phil, it is great to have you return to the most livable city in the world in glorious Melbourne. And no doubt that since you've been back in, in Fitzroy, you've made yourself well acquainted with all your hipster friends out there. And, and no doubt you're using your little push bike with the basket at the front to cycle to get your quinoa and, and tofu every day. How's that travelling for you? Look, I, I, I have a deep amount of affection for my fixie. Thank you very much to Prado. And, 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 and you know, I'll just expect you to show a little bit more respect for it. Thank you. I'll attempt to, but I'd rather show our two <laughs> guests the respect that they deserve. Um, Lucy and Rosie, it is so exciting to have you on Game Changers. I'm going to launch into our very, very first question. This is a question that we ask all of our guests here on, on Game Changers. And I might start with you, Rosie, and then and go, to, go to Lucy. Tell us a little bit about your story and how you've gotten to where you are today. For sure. Well, thanks so much for having us. I must admit, in the introduction there, when you said we have an art teacher and a history teacher, I did think, oh, you've got the wrong guest. I thought you were referring to us, but you guys are teacher. So I was already feeling like mega imposter syndrome then, but that's okay because that doesn't have to be my story. My story um, and, and Lucy's stories, in fact, are different. A lot of people kind of um, take one look at us and think that we're the exact same person, which I'm quite fine with because I'm, I'm Lucy's biggest fan. But actually we have really different um, stories. We we have a lot that unite us together and a, and a similar upbringing, obviously, because we came from the same family. But, um, yeah, we're quite different people that are united really by the same values. So. So um, I was telling this story just the other day, actually, and I think I might share it again now, that um, to, to look at where where our story sort of came from, you kind of do have to go all the way back to the very beginning. Not not quite childbirth, but a little a few yeah. years after that, as little kids, um, you know, growing up with sharing a really um, passionate and staunch, staunch sort of fierce mother who raised us, I think, to be really, really close and to have these values of sort of social justice and fairness and respect and just, I guess, the audacity to dream up a better world and sort of um, work with our peers to demand that better world. And, yeah, I think um, we, we share this story about how we used to come home from school um, and whenever we'd say to mum that we saw something really awful, like maybe someone was being really mean or something really unfair happened, we'd come home and we'd tell mum about it and every time her response was always the same. She'd listen to what we have to say and then she'd say, well, what are you going to do about it? And I think like throughout high school, especially um, that little voice grew much louder that when, when we saw injustice happen, I would ask myself like now is the moment when I can do something about it um, and it's a choice that I have to make when I see something really awful happen at school. And I know sometimes I did something about it, 
and sometimes I didn't do something about it. And I guess fast forward and, you know, Project Rocket today is Australia's youth-driven movement against bullying, hate and prejudice that is essentially uniting hundreds of thousands of young Aussies around the country to do something about the things that they, they you know, they see that they don't like and also to, to challenge the status quo. So I think, like, at its heart, Project Rocket is an anti-bullying organisation and looking back on my own experience at school, I definitely um, experienced bullying, definitely, and I can say that it's completely soul-destroying. But I think the biggest motivator for actually starting this organisation was more um, wanting to make a difference, like wanting to engineer a better world and knowing that, um, you know, as young people we have so much power but we didn't feel like that power was being acknowledged by grown-ups and we wanted to put the issues back in the hands of young people, give them the tools and the skills to be able to create the change that they want to see in the world. And so that's, I guess, a little bit of my motivation behind, you know, wanting to start, you know, Australia's youth-driven movement against bullying. Well, we're going to come back to you and explore some of those things that you just touched upon, particularly uh, about moments around the key decisions that you made to, to, to get to where you are today. And you've shared a little bit there. But Lucy, what about you? Can you share a little bit about uh, your particular story and how you've gotten to where you are today? Sure. Um, first of all, I want to flag that there are two snoring Dachshunds in the corner of um, this living room. So if you hear like a, a wheeze in the background, it's okay. My asthma is managed. It's like, and hopefully oh. you don't get any deliveries made because my Zoom meetings with Lucy's here have been peppered with like howling dogs. Anyway. Yeah, that, that's, all, that's all right because I've got a very large fat puggle who um, he, he really enjoys howling as well too so we could just have a, a whole cacophony of dogs today and i and i just yeah. snore so that's that's it all right well <laughs> and i inquire aside um i also want to acknowledge that i'm coming to everyone today from um Wurundjeri country and want to pay my respect to elders past present and emerging and yeah just acknowledge that the work that we do it uh, follows in the footsteps of you know the oldest living civilization who have endured so much bullying hate and prejudice on the lands that we come from so yeah Total, total respect and admiration for elders past, present and emerging. And a shout out to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who are tuned in today. Um, my experience, yeah, is in some ways similar to Rose and in some ways really different. I think that Ro likes to talk about the type of teenagers we were. Despite being really close, we were really, really different. She was a bedroom door open type teen um, and I was definitely a bedroom door closed type teen. Um, and, yeah, really found myself throughout adolescence like participating heaps in school and making the most of the opportunities out there but also I'm sure people relate to this there were definitely times when I wondered if I was in fact an alien um, transplanted into the body of a teenage human and felt like I completely didn't belong and that you know you go through those thoughts of just feeling like you're a complete outsider that no one's ever going to love you you're never going to be seen and valued for who you are and you know in a way I think that's a big um, red herring it's a big distraction that alienates us from the people around us even further and you know looking back on school and I've had so many conversations with people looking back on their time at school that's actually a really common experience that if you spend so much time walking around feeling like a total weirdo um, and actually, you know, you, you don't have the, the time frame ahead of you to, to be able to see yet how those very qualities that make you feel strange or weird or disconnected give you the capacity to add your point of difference in the world, to add value, to be able to shape the world for the better. And so, yeah, shortly after finishing school, I started thinking about how cool it would be if in school we have conversations about the, our differences in positive ways. If we look at how, if we learn how to stand up to bullying in school, how we could actually be so much better equipped to challenge 
bullying, hate and prejudice societally when we leave school, how we could actually make the world better by equipping young people with the skills to create change. Instead, however, as Ro mentioned, um, the experience you have talking about issues like bullying in school is very, um, yeah, it takes away your agency and your power. So often you're just told to not bully or bullying is treated as a problem between young people and at school, but it's not like the issue ends or dissolves when we leave the school gates or when we graduate from high school. Um, and so for me, it was thinking about possibility and how we could use this issue that is so human, it's age old, while technology has changed the nature of bullying, in some ways it, it's, it's as true as it ever was, how we could use this issue to look at how we could build more inclusive communities, how we could empower people to look at what it means to be themselves and to navigate, you know, the challenge of being yourself in an ever-changing world that somehow might not always accept who you are, how we can stand up for what we believe in and how we can actually build spaces where we can belong, where we don't have to change who we are to fit in. So that was kind of the driver. I just wanted to just kind of explore this a little bit with both of you now. I'm hearing that part of your kind of formation in, in, in your, your teen years where you, you both encountered behaviours that were totally unacceptable towards you, when you shared them with an adult who was, in your case, Rosie, your mum, she basically said, okay, own it, and what are you going to do about it? In that moment when she kind of challenged you in that space, what was your next reaction? Yeah, that's a really good question to break down those micro moments, isn't it? And to really like unpack how do we motivate action? Like how, what, yeah. what is the next step? Because I think um, often with, with as a young person, the will was there. Like I, I wanted to make a difference. The empathy was there. I cared about the people involved. But sometimes it was the how that was missing. Like, that, you know, in, in those moments, intervening is so hard. And I think we all relate to that as adults. There are so many very real risks that exist in that moment. And I think as a young person, those risks feel even bigger because you have to rock up at school every single day from, you know, 8 to 3 p.m. for your whole schooling, day in, day out with the same people. So you have a lot to lose in those moments. You know, not just the temporary risks of being laughed at or big risks like being targeted, but also other risks like developing a label that you can't possibly shake because you're now that kid that does that. Mm. And so, um, yeah, I think in the moment, I don't actually quite remember mum helping me with that, to be honest. I think, Luce, um, I remember you definitely did in the years in which we were closer at high school. I think I'm really lucky that I had loose even just to help help me out and I'm kind of road testing some of the things that I could do but fast forward I think into Project Rocket and that's what we saw was really missing was that you know young people want to stand up they want to make a difference but often they don't know how and so at its very core early on in the very beginning one of our core sort of reasons why we wanted to do it is to actually just help young people come up with really safe um, and credible strategies. Actually, at the time, I remember um, being like 19 years old and talking about cool strategies. So how can we actually change the culture at school where standing up is actually cool because you, uh, you, you're able to influence the people around you to also stand up, just basically positive peer pressure, right? And actually, you can bust out a really funny comeback that uses humour to split um, and and uh, the the tense tension, I guess, and also bring people on board. And so, yeah, we started really looking at how can we um, get young people to really come on board and contribute their own strengths, their own identities, their own personalities, their own quirks, 
that not everyone's going to stand up the same. We all have different adversity. We all have different, you know, confidence levels around risk. And so we wanted to make sure that we're having those conversations and getting young people really ready and prepared for that moment. And as Lou said, it's not just standing up to bullying. And we knew that early on too. We knew that bullying was going to be our foot in the door because that's what we thought teachers would book <laughs> an anti-bullying workshop, even though that was very hard to convince them in the very early days. But we knew that once we could get in there, what we were really talking about is creating change in the world. You know, that's what we were really motivated, I think, to tackle from an early age as well. Thank you very much, Rosie, for that. And Lucy as well, the courage that you've just shown there. And also thank you for your acknowledgement of, of, of country just a little bit earlier, because that's the stuff you're talking about, the lives that you're living now are so important to us and, and to the sorts of things that we've been trying to do since we began the series, which is about showcasing for educators, courageous and kind people who want to take that big step forward and up and do the thing. So we've explored a little that notion of your people and your place, because I think purpose probably comes out of that. And it's really clear what your sense of purpose in the world is and how it's emerging. Uh, I really enjoyed hearing about how that emerges into a mission and a project. What I'd like you to do, maybe Lucy, you can lead off with this. I'd like you to talk to us about how you went from having a sense of purpose and a mission and a project to gaining expertise in what it was that you did. Because th th this is, you know, we, we, we love your cause, but we're also educators and we're really, really interested in that notion of how you can help young people to go from intent to execution. Sure. Um, that's such a great question. And my gosh, looking back row to the very beginning, my mind boggles at the at what we didn't know. In fact, I think I'm now laughing along right now because of that, Luce. I'm having like flashbacks to us you know, 15 years ago. In a way, if we'd realised how much we didn't know and how much we'd have to learn, I wonder if we even would have gotten started. It might have felt like an Everest. But um, the first thing that, that stands out to me is we did, we were really confident in what we did know. And at the time that that piece of knowledge or value was missing from the conversation about these issues. And that's just the experience of being a young person and centering that. Um, so, you know, we understood that the strategies that are routinely provided to young people won't cut it that, you know, it's not sufficient to tell someone if they're being bullied to ignore it. If they walk away, someone might follow them or it'll happen again that fighting back in the long term has really adverse consequences, but people fight back because they don't have adequate conflict resolution skills. And so we understood the kind of complexities on the ground of young people's experience. The, the biggest area, um, and, and I'll say we were very diligent students as well. We um, went away and did a lot of research. So we wanted to make sure that we could map that lived experience, not only of ourselves, but of our peers alongside understanding the research and in a way, um, yeah, detouring to make sure that our what we were doing was evidence-based I will name the challenge there though, is that the academic literature around bullying isn't aligned to young people's experiences. So, so often, you know, research as we know moves at a glacial pace and often young people are studied as guinea pigs, but not included in the research process. So that means that things like definitions of bullying actually don't align with young people's experiences of bullying, um, or maybe, you know, the, their best interventions um, aren't treated with the kind of complexity of those lived experiences. But L yeah, Lucy, so um, young people are often not included in lots of things. Yes, that, totally. That, that, that is the real crime about our educational system, you know. Um, yeah. so I would, I would imagine if they were included more often, it, we, we wouldn't be in the situation we are today. 
Sorry, go ahead. Absolutely. And so, yeah, early on, that was almost a barrier being realizing that we could see this gap and looking to fill it not only with lived experience, but with um, understanding and knowledge and wisdom as well. And just seeing that the that that issue of excluding young people exists well beyond you know what we were trying to do. It's a it's a broader social problem. So yeah, there was a lot of I'll say early on there was a lot of like googling of um, and asking questions of of just really humbly of people who we felt felt would have answers about things like setting up an organisation, how to run a business, how to um how to set up a website. We taught ourselves all of these really basic rudimentary skills that back then were actually not automated they were it was quite challenging to learn how to code html and work out what teachers wanted and what would fit in well with curriculum um and so it was yeah a lot of scrambling for answers and working it out as we as we went over time um actually the issue has kind of flipped a little bit we've now that we've gained a lot of experience and our entire careers have been running this organization i'd say both Ron and i are really um well well supported with a raft of understanding about how schools work and what educators need and what is sustainable in terms of what kind of impact we can create and how we can scale nationally but what we've become more distant from is that young person's lived experience and so the biggest resource for us now in making sure that we remain connected to where we started is our youth brains trust which is uh, a group of 15 young people aged 12 to 20 who guide our leadership at Project Rocket and make sure we're really informed and what we're doing remains relevant and credible to young people. So it has been a bit of a flip over the years that, um, yeah, in, a really interesting journey in, in terms of gaining the skills we needed. Look, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm sitting here and listening to you and just loving so much of what you're talking about and, and, and learning stuff along the way. I wonder how many schools there are out there right now that pay lip service to student representative councils. Because most schools have got them, don't they? Most schools have got that brains trust already. And the most they ever let them do is, you know, a sausage sizzle or playing around with a school uniform or a mufti day instead of actually picking up serious issues along the way. I want to take you to that notion of uh, that, that sort of encompasses everything that you guys are working. That is the notion of digital citizenship. So it's about how to encourage people to be the people that they should be and that they could be in an online space as opposed to the people that they might be when the when the worst side of human nature occurs. It's, it, it seems to us when, when we look at the research that we've been doing around the world over the past decade into how people form character, there's a wrestling that always exists. Um, there's a wrestling between your inner drive as to who you should become and external expectations about what you have to comply with. Um, and in the course of your lifetime, you're never really going to resolve that fully. And from time to time, it'll be more inner drive and time to time, it'll be more external expectations. What we tend to find, though, is that those who are led by their inner drive of what is of, of where they belong, how they achieve their potential and how they do good and right in the world are more likely to get on the front foot in this citizenship. And those who rely on external expectations are more likely to fall victim to just going along with the crowd. Um, how do we help young people to develop that sense of voice and agency that allows them to step away from the crowd? This is one of my favourite topics, I think. And, and going back to the very beginning, that kernel of why we started Project Rocket, I reckon this is the thing that I knew in school as a teenager. I reckon I was 15 years old and I grasped this. And to add something else to it, um, without having that language, mind you, I think I saw it as like 
feeling this real pressure and tension between um, being told to stand out and speak up and, you know, unleash yourself into the world, but also feeling an enormous pressure to fit in. Mm. And I think like when we look at those moments where you are standing there and you see something horrible happen um, and, and we're trying to create action in young people, I think it all comes back to character. It comes back to having a really solid sense of who you are, what your values are and what your bottom line is. And I remember, I think as a young person, the thing that came into my head a lot was, was you know, how can we expect young people to stand up if they don't know what they stand for? Because fundamentally, they're the things that drive us in the world. You know, we, I think it's, you know, helping young people understand what their vision is for the world, the kind of world that they want to see, and then motivating them and giving them the skills to be able to create that world. So feeling like they can have the autonomy to do so, I think is often that missing link. So, yeah, I think um, the other sort of missing link, I think, when we're talking about developing character in young people is also giving young a young person a bit of room to fail because I think these days, and particularly when we're looking at, um, you know, stuff that happens online, you know, we hear these messages that everything is permanent, it's your digital footprint, if you stuff up, your bloody life's ruined, your career's mm. over, you, no one will like you. But actually, um, you know, stuff-ups, whether they're offline or online, are so important in in someone developing their own sense of who they are and their ability to realize you know what what are they ashamed of what what's the kind of person that they want to be and i think looking back to my teen years i'm really glad that the internet wasn't there for a lot of them because i made some massive f-ups like real mistakes some stuff that i'm really ashamed of and in a way i'm so grateful for those because it actually really helped carve out such a crystal clear set of values of what I, the person that I want to be. And I think having that understanding of who you are, particularly in an online setting, is really important because we see that even though it's a very, very public sphere, it's actually really personal and private in many ways too. And I think it's in those personal private moments, you know, when someone's scrolling down and they see something really awful or they've been sent a really horrible photo or um, something about someone else, that it's those moments that we need young people to rely on their sense of character and their own um, worldview of ethics to be able to make that right choice in the moment. You know, it's really interesting uh, what you just said there. I just had a bit of an aha moment in your response. And I'm going to come to you in a moment, Lucy, in, in relation to what I've just, just discovered. It's, it's so interesting that for 26 years in, in, in education, I've really focused on on supporting young people to enter into a space where they have their own agency and, and voice. And of course, in the initial stages, I'm part, of, I'm kind of a co-author of their story, but ultimately I want them to be their own author of their own story and, and, and really take that ownership. And so I was, obviously I've only ever really encouraged them to stand out and stand up. But what I love, what I just heard you say, and this is the revelation is the reality is that most teenagers, teenagers yes, they hear that, and there's an appreciation for that because that's about being seen, which is, which is fundamentally really important. But all they really want to do is fit in. So there, there's some tension there, right? There's a restlessness around that. And I love that's why, Lucy, I want to come to you now because from the, from the top of this show, you ensured that we were grounded about our place. And, and, and there was a deep acknowledgement of, of our Indigenous sisters and brothers. And, and the fact that for far too long, we haven't given the sense of belonging that they deserve because that's what fundamentally fitting in means doesn't it it's this deep sense of belonging about being valued about being known and about being loved why is it so hard 
for school communities to put aside this, this commitment to the hamster wheel of standardized testing, this commitment to, you know, an ATAR to define your value, this, this commitment around demonizing teachers and school leaders when that plan results are not right, when the stuff that really matters is what we're talking about here today. And that's a deep suited sense of, of self uh, a connectedness to place. And of course, uh, uh, the relationship with the other. What can we be doing differently, Lucy, in, in schools today to help our leaders realise that this is the stuff that matters, our humanness is what is what matters and what should be amplified? Wow. Well, I love, I love this question in general and the conversation around, you know, belonging versus fitting in. And actually, this, that particular question, that particular conversation is one that I've been lucky to have with lots of um, thousands of school students. What's the difference between belonging and fitting in and it's quite incredible because you know year seven students year eight year nine year 10 year 11 year 12 year four can articulate what that difference is and the themes I've noticed is that you know people will say fitting in means that you have to change who you are to to be accepted by the group or fitting in can feel like you're performing whereas belonging means that you can bring all of yourself into a space and know that people will respect and accept who you are um, and so I think intrinsically that almost isn't something that we have that has to be learned it almost to me, the, the, the fitting in part is something that we have to unlearn. Um, and one of our guiding principles at Project Rocket that we practice both in our workshops and in our teams and in our leadership structures and everything we do is unlearn prejudice. It's, it's that idea that, you know, it actually takes efforts to undo this lifetime of reinforcement that we have to change who we are or that other people have to change who they are to be palatable to us. Um, and it's such a profound kind of conversation. I think the first step is having these conversations and, you know, understanding that, you know, to, to fit in in school isn't necessarily a condition in which people will flourish. It's a it's a survival mechanism. It's a path that many people yeah. have to choose, um, especially those for whom, you know, you mentioned before, Phil, that internal and external motivations, sometimes they might be heavily at conflict or people who have to walk with a foot in multiple worlds or, or, or you know, they might have a cultural load that's different yeah, absolutely. to their family load or maybe that, you know, the, the values of their school might conflict with their own personal kind of beliefs and orientations as well. So I just think it's so complex and yet these are the conversations that we don't have not only in school but also societally we online we're so polarized and we see that we're part of we, we we're served up views that reinforce our own global view rather than you know gently coaching and coaxing out conversations that might grow and expand our understanding of what it means to be human so I think it's a great question and I, I'm really as Project Rocket reaches maturity I'm kind of excited about how we can take these conversations and yeah, absolutely share them widely and hold these in school. But also how can we be learning from school students to actually improve our knowledge and our understanding of what inclusion really looks like? Because I think they have many of the answers already and, and these conversations just aren't being had. I, I, I love this notion um, of, of a deep kind of tuning in, you know, a real deep tuning in about a, a consciousness. You know, at a School for Tomorrow, we, we created this initiative because we're, we're only young, we're only like five months old. And, and we started this initiative called um, Today's Student, Tomorrow's Leader, where we kind of highlight remarkable young people from all walks of life. Uh, they're generally uh, young people who are, who are in their final year of high school or in their first few years out of that kind of um, paradigm and they've moved into apprenticeships or university or whatever they're now doing. And a common theme that we are starting to see through in each young person is this deep consciousness about the other. 
their genuine concern for the environment and their genuine concern for our collective future. And can I say, for me, that that has been a real amplification just in the last five to 10 years. It wasn't always that obvious, but th- there's, a, there's a different generation that's coming through now that has this deep consciousness. They're deeply concerned about issues of race. They're deeply concerned about issues of gender, uh, sexual orientation, uh, the the climate, resource scarcity, everything that's going on in the world. They want to know about it. That's the selflessness thing, isn't it, Adriano? That's that's like old people are always so good at whinging about young people, but I think we have the most selfless generation of young people coming through. They're just amazing, aren't they, mate? Well, and, 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 and the problem is generations like mine and older are interpreting it the opposite, right? they're thinking they're self-absorbed and that it's all about self. But that's not my experience. It might be someone's experience when they encounter uh, an influence on Instagram, but that's not my experience in, in working and, uh, with young people. In your work with young people, what are some of the common themes that are coming through that you're seeing that they're deeply challenged by, but they're also optimistic about? I think you've named the, the, the paradox of the, this generation that is so difficult to wear that, you know, we hear school students who are like, you know, older people say that we're so fragile and yet we're we're faced with the most precarious state of the earth ever because of um, the people who have come before us. And it's just, you know, people who are like, we're apparently so selfish, but if I'm so selfish, why do I spend so much time labouring over whether how I use plastics or whether I can order a, a takeaway coffee in a you know non-keep cup. Um, so the level of kind of conscientiousness around decision making is so so profound. Um, I do think that there is a big challenge in connecting that ethos with also um, the reality of a diversity of points of view in the world. And I, I do think that you know I, I think for, for this generation, cancel culture that idea that by putting by making a mistake. Um, you can essentially be destroying your relationships or your reputation or future prospects is so um, such a such an anxiety that so many young people carry that you know you look to a world that as I said before is increasingly polarized where you see people in positions of power that um, are routinely called out and because of the power of technology um, that you know you you could be immediately removed from your positive standing in the world. And I think that's terrifying and in a way stops, can prevent or cause a barrier for so many, yeah, really well-meaning and intentional, great young people from actually speaking their truth and um, showing an interest and advocating for others. And so I think in a way, there's a bit of a barrier there. And um, what what we're really interested in at Project Rocket is how we can mobilize young people as a collective so that you can speak out as a whole and come together and share views that are representative of, yeah, different perspectives and allow diversity of of viewpoints, but actually with the safety that we can have different differing perspectives. We can have the hard conversations. We can disagree with people. We don't have to all like each other, but we can still um, model everything we do with compassion, respect, kindness. Um, And so I think that's where, yeah, that's where I see that that real challenge for this generation is being able to carve out different points of view with the safety that, you know, your views might change. You're you're not, you're you're 15 or 16. It's okay to be be still learning and making mistakes and expressing something that might be problematic in one moment and learning and growing from that experience as well. Yeah, I I love what you're saying there, Lucy. Um, I think the challenge about resilience is so many so many programs that go around and they just tell kids to be resilient without actually looking at what the issue is in and around it and and we know that there are significant there's a significant um, prevalence 
around mental health with young people today. So we know the stats around this and we've known this for a number of years now. I'm, 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 I'm going to quote some stuff that comes from a colleague in, uh, in Canada. We know that by the time children turn 18 in the developing world, it's probably worse than the non-developing world where we don't really have enough disaster. Uh, we don't really have, uh, uh, sorry, the developed world rather than the developing world. We've got one in two students who will have had a clinical episode of mental health going on. At any point in time, we've got between 15 and 19% of students in front of you who've either just about to go through, are going through, or have just finished going through that episode. So if you're in a classroom space, you've got 25 kids in front of you, roughly speaking, that's five out of those kids are dealing with that right now. So I don't think we have a resilience issue. I think we've got mental health stuff happening. I think from what we can tell, there's a correlation between the rise in that and two things. Number one, we've actually started tracking this more seriously. So we started taking seriously the notion that adolescence is a period in which kids seem to engage with these episodes more. And number two, the rise of social media and prevalence of devices. So you guys have been doing work around this whole space of online, as we talked about digital citizenship earlier. The answers to this can't simply be about young people solving problems by themselves and listening to young people. Those things are very important. How do we get older people and younger people, an older generation and a younger generation coming together to understand it's not about be more resilient. It's actually around learning to be well in the world so that you can then thrive in the world. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to jump in here. I think, um, look, as you pointed out, it, it is mental health or mental ill health, I should say, um, and its its relationship to young people is a worldwide issue. But here in Australia, you mm -hmm. know, here in Australia, we have some of the most harrowing statistics, you know, that that um, suicide could be the lead, leading cause of death for young Australians is is so harrowing and so shameful. And it is really, really preventable. But um, yeah, as you said, like there are so many different things at play here. There are so many different influencing factors. And um, you've named the, the gap, the generation gap, if you like. Um, I, I think that one does play a really big role. You've named social media as playing a role. And I think that's a very contentious one, but it is a very true one that we, we still don't know the great effects of um, social media on the development of young people and also their, their mental health. What we will say, and something that I'm very, very passionate about, is um, uh, really choosing to examine social media as a bit of a petri dish and to really look at the ways in which we can um, scrutinise and criticise and bring to light how it's not serving young people and also, really importantly, scrutinise and bring to light how it is serving young people and how we can actually mm -hmm. engineer mm -hmm. more of these spaces to um, be talking about mental health. As um, you said before, Phil, you were like, never before have you seen a more connected generation that is standing up for these issues. I think social media is to thank for that. And I actually look mm. at the issue of mm. mental okay. health, for example, as, a, as a, almost a movement um, worldwide, but is really often led by young people around really trying to remove the stigma around talking about mental ill health um, and trying to promote, you know, more connected, inclusive and respectful yeah, spaces. Yeah, it, it, it's really interesting um, because I know it's very easy 
particularly for adults and, and the media to, to be fixated on the deficit element of social media. And yeah, you know, we know that people misuse the space. We know that people misuse it for bullying or spreading hate or prejudice. But I can tell you right now, that's just not limited to young people. Mm. You know, there, there are probably so many adults out there. And can I see, when, when you see sometimes um, parents get onto school Facebook pages, the vitriol that they, they spread and, and their behaviour is, is, is the modelling that young people should never see or witness because they, then they're conditioned a particular way to almost think that's the permission, you know, and, and people feel a little bit anonymous. But I, I'm a huge advocate for social media. I think it's the phenomenon of our time and I feel it's something that has been in some ways a great equaliser and bringing lots of people together and, and, and connecting together. I mean, I'm, I've been a huge admirer of both of your work through what I've seen through social media. I, I, love, I love the way in particular that Lucy has this, this capacity to invite people into a space um, without prejudice, without judgment. And, and you probably don't even like half of the things some of these people have to say or how they behave, but you do it, it with, with a genuineness around, around the mission of kindness and respect and people thriving. And so I, I see the positivity of it. How can then we collectively achieve an aspiration that where, where kindness and respect is the default and not the fear as the default. Yeah, that's a that's a beautiful question to ponder. Um, and I think in a way, I think what's missing from this conversation about mental health and kindness and resilience is the notion of healing. Mm -hmm. Like resilience is all well and good, but how are you supposed to bounce back when you haven't actually recovered or um, rehabilitated? Um, and in a way, when people go through really complex mental health issues or whatever got them there, whether, you know, there, there was trauma or, you know, or racism or homophobia or transphobia or whatever it is, how are you supposed to, you're never going to be the same after an experience like that. And so I really think that there's an opportunity for us to look at what growth looks at, looks like without that idea of just bounce back, just get on with it. I think that when we hear these conversations around resilience in school so much, and I think it's so important to, especially for educators, to be able to trust that young people are gaining the skills to, to recover and bounce back and, um, you know, make it through tough times and ride out the storm. Um, but also want to acknowledge that, you know, mental health doesn't, it, it affects our population in very different ways. And you are more likely to encounter negative mental health if you are, you know, trans or if you are gender diverse, um, LGBTI in general, if you're Aboriginal, if you're a person of colour. And that's not that that's not because those groups represent weakness. It's actually because you're more likely, if you have those identities, to encounter a bunch of crap out there in the world. And so I think for us to have conversations so that we can get back to kindness, we actually need to lean into healing these issues, healing, he, actually doing the work to deal with racism, doing the work to create inclusive um, communities in our schools and, you know, in our workplaces that allow people to belong for who they are. And, and then we can talk about resilience. Then we can talk about bounce, bouncing back. But, um, yeah, for me, kindness has come as a tool to get myself through the most difficult times. It's been, I, I can see the way I've met people who have become more brittle, who have become cruel through experiences of adversity. It's like, you know, that was their way to find a way to bounce back. And I think bouncing back too quickly sometimes means that we end in, we land in a place of, yeah, that isn't kind, that isn't open. And by far the more difficult, and I think the more worthy and courageous experience is to grow through difficult times through a lens of openness and to actually use those opportunities that are earth shattering as a way to rebuild our world um, in such, such a manner that it's bigger, that it can accommodate more. It can actually understand and include different experiences, even if they're hard to tolerate or hard to bear. Mm -hmm.
Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's where I come from. But I'll name just quickly that that's actually really healed me as well, that, you know, in a way, in ways you'd never expect being open, being kind, compassionate, come back to you and support you in the times when you, you actually need it most. Rosie, you're just dying to say something here. Go on. Yeah, I was going to say, like, um, you know, listening to Luz, um, you know, and obviously just, like, what she brings to the world in terms of kindness is, like, so in Project Rocket's DNA. And, like, this is what's going out into schools, working with, you know, on average 4,000 students a week is what we're working with at the moment in every state and territory. And I think what, um, what I've brought to the relationship early on is what I want to add to this moment, and that is putting a revolution behind that, putting fuel, putting energy, putting drive, uniting young people with the actual, you know, not just belief, but but tools that they can use to actually revolutionise these spaces. Because social media doesn't need just like a renovation in a way, you know, to, an upgrade. It needs a demolition so that we can rebuild it from the ground up. And that's where education just has such an enormous role to play. There are actually skills we can teach, you know. Like we know that... Bullying breeds in apathetic environments. Social media is generally apathetic because it's anonymous. So how can we bring accountability um, and help young people stand up and actually like tear down the structures that are, um, you know, preventing everyone from being included and respectful and rebuild them in a really empowered and intentional way? A few years ago, a moment that um, struck me, a few years ago I did a TEDx talk at uh, Sydney Uni about kindness and it was a really daunting experience. I shared a very personal account um, of my own experience of bullying and, yeah, which was about an experience of being bullied on the basis of your sexuality, uh, which is quite vulnerable when you have, a, a yeah, a, a role working in schools. I imagined, you know, it was, it was just very vulnerable. And afterwards in the foyer, a young guy who would have been 19, 18 or 19, came up to me with his dad and said, hey, I've, I've got some questions I wanted to ask about your experience. Um, and the first the first thing he put up as a disclaimer was that I'm part of a, me and my family, we're proud members of a very, um, considered very conservative um, Christian faith. And um, so our community have a lot of concerns about um, the, the experiences of people in the world who are LGBTIQA plus and how they might clash with our values and um, what this means for people within our community. and. We had this, um, yeah, really challenging conversation. And I, I, I just imagine if that whole interaction had been online, I would I, I would envisage that it wouldn't have allowed that kind of complexity of conversation and empathy and respect for different points of view. Because just the act of looking at someone face to face and being able to see who they are and read, um, yeah, read their, their wholeness as a person um, allowed for a really rich conversation. So yeah, I just see that as being a big part of it too. Okay, guys, I'm, I'm going to jump in here because everything you're saying is at the user end. Now what I want to go to is the other end around this sort of stuff. And I want to use an example around this. In broadcast news in the United States up to the 1980s, there was a rule that said you have to show both sides of an issue and you have to be impartial in and around that. That rule was developed at a policy level, at a legislative level, after over a century of experience at dealing with the way in which a public discourse works, that the way we do something in a civilised fashion is to create objective people in the middle who take responsibility for a balanced debate. Then, at the behest of some of the lobbying groups, that rule disappeared. And now, jump forward 30-odd years later, we have broadcast networks that call themselves platforms and they absolve themselves of the responsibility for a balanced perspective. We end up with this 
polemic, this polarisation of society. There's no requirement for any balance whatsoever. And so we end up with structures that require the worst side of human nature. You know, we've got social media that is designed on the premise of fear of missing out and of promoting anxiety as opposed to bringing people together. I think there needs to be intervention at a policy level as well as that personal level. So yes, we need to be going out and encouraging young people to be open and to work out how to exchange and we need old people to do the same thing. But we need governments to, to, to stand up to this and say, do you know what, in this world, we are not going to allow social media and, 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 broadca and new broadcast networks to hide behind corporate veils, which are globalised. We're not going to allow them to construct the media on the basis of dividing people. And we, we insist that they take responsibility for promoting the better side of human nature. How can we shift the attention of advocates and leaders and young people towards making governments take responsibility for what government should be doing, and that is providing for the peace, order, and good government of a country. Well, that's a whole new podcast. Really feel like I'm like, that is such an enormous, that is like such an enormous question, and it's an exciting one. I think we're all seeing right now, playing out on social media, particularly coming out of the US election, mm -hmm. just like the saturation of misinformation for one, but also just how divisive and hateful it is. And I, I don't know about you guys, but I actually feel at times a sense of desperation. When I'm, when I'm seeing, it feels like, um, you know, there's such a lack of control around truth. Um, and so now there's, there's all this new language around, like, it's an alternative truth. Or how can there be an alternative truth? And so I think, like, yeah, the kind, what we're really creating right now is a real whirlwind hurricane of ideas that are so um, conflicting. And now we're seeing people that are feeling so powerless while those are trying to cling to power. And as a result, I think we're seeing, like, real division, real hate, um, and, and as a result of that, though, I do see that there are people that are really coming out and there are the grassroots movements that are starting to gain a lot of traction because those institutions that have been clinging to power are starting to lose some of their power and it's creating a vacuum where we're actually hearing now um, ideas that, you know, that have been galvanised essentially by the power of social media for good, that it, we, we have the power now to, to look at dismantling these structures. But as you said, from a government level, Really, it comes down to, you know, what are they willing to lose? They're not willing to lose power um, and, and control. And so, yeah, I'm not sure whether you can legislate for that. I think it's a, mm -hmm. a huge um, cultural reckoning globally that um, requires so much more, as you said, than just individuals. We're all, I feel like we're all doing our best as change makers to try and, you know, um, you know leverage, leverage these systems for good. But essentially they are set up in such a way in which it's very, very hard to move the needle. Rosie, um, I want to apologise for dropping that hand grenade right at that point in the in the interview. I think we'll take you up on that offer of a podcast. And I know that Adriana's got a really clever idea about how to engage around this. I think there might be a whole topic in that whole notion of how societies structure the conditions around an education for truth. Um, Lucy, you're dying to say something there, though, aren't you? I was just going to say um, that it always helps me to, con when I it also blows my mind, when I connect to the reality that even the people who I disagree with most in the world probably have a belief that they're doing the right thing. Um, so, you know, there are people who fundamentally, I, I would just never agree with them. I view their, their, their approach and ideology as nasty, but we 
we both probably hold the belief that we are working towards a better world. Um, so I, I, that, that idea, it's, it's just wild to think that, um, yeah, we, we can be in total opposition, but also have in common that we think we're making the world better. And that's where I think there's a, a real opportunity for organisations, governments, social media platforms, media outlets to elevate views that are um, diverse and that aren't widely represented, that, you know, the, the, the older archaic fighting to retain control and I think that there's such an opportunity to elevate voices that yeah can provide can welcome and you can actually invite and include different points of view um, into something much greater so yeah I think that's a big thing for us at Project Rocket and I'll name now Pro and I recognize that Project Rocket's 14 years on we're probably not the right people to be leading the charge with this conversation anymore um, and so for us that's about handing the mic over to the next generation of young people and choosing very carefully about who we hand that microphone to um, we're so lucky and I'd love to just give a shout out to our incredible um, team of passionate brilliant young people we are all so different but we are united by the vision of a world where kindness and respect thrive over bullying, hate and prejudice. And yeah, I think I'm really hopeful and, and have great faith in the future because I get to work with these people every day. That exchange of power that you're talking about there that, that goes from the expert to the novice, that's exactly what we call character apprenticeship. Again, everything we've been hearing today is, is, is just learning and practice. Adriana, you have, you have one last question. Um, well, just a couple of things, just listening to this uh, really exciting conversation after you dropped the grenade there, Phil, um, <laughs> in, in relation to that topic. Look, I, I'm personally, I'm not really convinced 100% that um, we need more government regulation about anything, but that's just a personal perspective. Having said that, though, clearly the role of governments has to start pivoting towards the wellness of its society and that we've got to start measuring. And that's what you were alluding to, Phil, about some of my ideas around that we've got to start we've got to we've got to stop measuring the things that don't matter anymore the things that matter is ultimately a society that that where wellness is at the center where we can continue to support young young people and all people to flourish from a position of happiness and healthiness i'm interested in just one final thing from from both of you because so much of what i've been hearing today is less about supporting young people around the notion of resilience which sometimes, again, can be a deficit or a negative. It's just simply about tolerating things that are happening to them. But what I heard from the top of this show was two powerful young women came to a realisation that they wanted to develop their resourcefulness to transform the world and make a difference. And for me, that's the real profoundness of, of how we need to go forward. We need to move from resilience, which is about survival, to resourcefulness, which is about thriving. How can we help our school communities really focus on it, the reason why we exist, and that's about a youth advocacy, where we can ensure that issues of gender and race and sexual orientation are part of the construct of a new social contract for society and for schools. Yeah, I think it comes back to what we were saying before around like even how schools might have youth advisories but do are we listening? Like, is everything on the table for reinvention and scrutiny? And I think, um, that, you know, for us, you know, it's not enough to just, um, you know, hire a young person, send them into schools. It's really important that we're hiring a really diverse team that are really representative of all the young people that we serve, and 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 that not only are we listening to what they have to say, but they're in, they have the ability to shape everything. Everything's on the table. So for us, that could be, um, you know, our content, our policies. The, the development of the organization, like literally the direction of the organization. And I don't see why it can't be like that for a school as well. 
but why they can't be involved in every part of their learning, not just as participants, but as active change makers in their own learning and to help shape the peers around them. And I think doing that requires a lot of humility and it does require um, a real ability to actually be vulnerable and acknowledge our own weaknesses and gaps and limitations. Um, but ultimately, as you said before, it's really um, treating young people as the fully capable, incredible, responsible, amazing citizens that they really are and, um, you know, allowing them to actually create that change within a school. The challenge I see, though, in raising what you're sharing, of course, is that schools see the construct of wellness as an add-on. It's not their core it's priorities, business. Adriano, right? isn't that, it? Well, it's that's like, right. And that, that, that's the thing. And, and how do we convince uh, uh, the, these, these important entities in our community to re-emphasise a focus on, on wellness coming first? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think, um, as you just said, then it's about like changing from a deficit model to an opportunity mm -hmm. model. So it's not just talking about, cause we've been talking for years about mm -hmm. the harms of what happens when we don't embed wellness into schools. We speak about, we, we know the statistics that are impacting young people with mental ill health, but maybe we need to shift to the opportunity, you know, visual visionary. What, what happens if we do create cultures where wellness is prioritized, where humanity is, is at the core of all learning and difference and diversity is, is really, um, you know, considered in every part of education. So maybe if we start looking at, and maybe it's, there are schools out there doing this. Yeah. There are schools out there that are really like absolutely reinventing, reinventing um, and reimagining what school could be like. And I say we shift the spotlight onto those schools so we can really learn from them what does this new new world of school really look like? There's a challenge for all of us. I think we need to wrap up now. This has been the most engaging of conversations. We are so grateful, uh, Lucy and Rosie Thomas, for joining us today. Um, for any of our listeners out there, um, Project Rocket, if they if if they want to support Project Rocket, what's the best way to do that, Lucy? Um, yeah, oh, we Project Rocket is Australia's youth-driven movement against bullying, hate, and prejudice, and it really is a collective. That it's a community, and it started as a family, and we just would love for everyone to feel that they can be part of that. Um, so you can check out to learn more about Project Rocket. You can head to our website, projectrocket.com.au. Um, Rocket spelled R-O-C-K-I-T. You can also find us on all social media. So if if you want to see what adults and educators think of Project Rocket, head to our Facebook page. If you want to join the conversation with young people, you'll find them on Instagram. And the other thing that I'd love to name, another way that you can support Project Rocket is really just by being the person you needed when you were younger. That I want to acknowledge with great empathy for educators that I would love to change the entire fabric of the school system. But an educator is a person within a school. A school is within a system and systems are hard to change. So even just on that micro level to, yeah, you are supporting our work with the great work that you do and the connections that you build with young people every day. So, yeah, a really sincere thanks and gratitude for everything you do too. Thank you very much for sharing that. And I hope people get behind Project Rocket and discover so much more about the transformation that's already happening in our schools through not only your work, but by many others. I just want to say to you both that this has been an absolute privilege to be able to sit down with uh, two individuals that continue to, to give so much of themselves for others. You, you used the phrase DNA before. Well, I tell you what, it's just oozing out right now. It's, um, it's come right alive. I'm really energised by these opportunities to sit down with people who genuinely give a shit about others, you know, and, and you do. You do it with intent because I think that's an important part of it. You, you do it with whole hearts and brave visions and, and this notion of supporting 
young people and all people to develop the resourcefulness to simply live their truth. Thank you both for living your truth and being prepared to be vulnerable with, with us here today, but with every person that you encounter. Because the more and more that young people can see strength in that vulnerability, strength in, in the power of our story, I remain hopeful that we're going to have a world that's going to be better and kinder going forward. So I wish you both all the very best. And uh, we really look forward to an opportunity perhaps where we can connect in real life and, and perhaps work together as well. Thanks, thank, thank you. you. Thanks for having us. The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions. It's powered by a schoolfortomorrow.com and circle.education. It's available on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, on Spotify and on Google. If you like what you hear, tell your friends, subscribe, like, you know what to do. Let's go.